Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. We have a great episode in store for you. We are going to be talking about honeybee nutrition with Emily Nordyke, master student here at the University of Florida. We will also talk about master beekeeper programs. What are they? What do they hope to accomplish? And we are going to be answering some questions from our listeners. In addition to that, we are kicking off this podcast with an in-depth discussion of Varroa. To do that, we are accompanied by Cameron Jack, who is a PhD student and lecturer here at the University of Florida Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory. He is a Varroa specialist. Welcome to Two Bees in a Pod, Cameron. Thanks again for having me. Absolutely. It's great to have you. So we want to talk Varroa. Amy, what do you want to know about Varroa? What is Varroa? What is Varroa? Varroa is a parasitic mite that feeds on the honeybee fat tissues that is transmits a lot of viruses. So that's why it's such a big frustration for beekeepers. So our, our, you know, you say it's frustration for beekeepers. That means most beekeepers are aware that it exists. This is something all beekeepers hear about considerably. I think at this point, if you're a beekeeper in the United States, you've probably, if you've been beekeeping or at any point in time, you probably are aware of Varroa. Yeah, you know, I agree. Everywhere I go on planet Earth, beekeepers, when they have their meetings, there's always a talk or two about Varroa. So we're going to try to use the next 15 or 20 minutes to introduce you listeners to Varroa. Probably many of you are aware of this mite. You're working to control it. But there are some things that we want to share with you a bit about the biology, well, you know where it came from, things like that. But we're also going to spend considerable time in future podcasts talking about control, new research on Varroa, etc., so Cameron, you know, you've told us it's an ectoparasitic mite, a mite that's on the outside of the bee's body, but feeding on uh, fat tissues. Where, where did this thing originate? So Varroa is from um, Asia. It's, its native host is Apis serrana, which is the Asian honeybee. And Varroa's, there's a few different species of Varroa, actually. Um, the one that hmm. we have in the United States is Varroa destructor, which is a great name. Yeah, <laughs> um, exactly what it says does. what it does. Exactly. Yep. Um, and Varroa destructor um, is it, so basically what happens is as beekeepers in Asia started to move bees in um, move bees into Asia for honey production, they were bringing in Apis mellifera. And so when you start overlapping the regions for Apis mellifera and Apis serrana, you're going to get um, some transfer of different pests and pathogens. And so basically that's what happened is Varroa jumped ship from Apis serrana to Apis mellifera. And then from there, since Apis mellifera is kept all over the world, then it just started to spread. You know, I, Cameron, I think that is absolutely key to Varroa's issue, right? So it, it's not always the case, but often the case when things move host, in this case, Varroa is moving from Apis serrana, the Asian honeybee, to Apis mellifera, the Western honeybee, when things move host, when biology, we call this a host shift, when things do this, 
they can be worse for their new host than they were on uh, for their original host. So Serana, presumably, you know, co-evolved with Varroa, right? So Varroa is not as bad a problem for Serana. How does Serana deal with Varroa? Why, why do beekeepers of, of Apis Serana not worry as much about Varroa as do beekeepers of Apis mellifera? Yeah, you're right. I mean, because of that co-evolution, they've, they've evolved a few different mechanisms that we know about. So one of them being um, an increased hygienic behavior from the Apis Serana bees. They groom themselves more, they groom each other more, and then they are also just more aggressive towards the mite. They will bite at it, they will do what they can. They, they basically, the workers will not stop until they get that mite off their bodies, where as a lot of Apis mellifera workers are just somewhat content. I mean, uh, they just allow the mite to be there, where uh, Apis serrana just doesn't put up with that. So that behavior is called grooming, right? So the work sure. the Apis serrana is grooming its body. Mellifera does the same thing. In fact, you can select for it in mellifera and have enhanced grooming behavior. But more on that in future podcasts. Sure. There's also a few other mechanisms. Um, one of them being that the uh, we don't know, understand exactly how it's happening, but we basically only find the mite reproducing in on drone brood, which is not necessarily the case with Apis mellifera. We, we see it mm. in both workers and drone. Um, and something that's really interesting about the Apis serrana biology is if there are, um, uh, under certain conditions, it might cause the, the uh, drone that's uh, where the, the mite is in that cell feeding, it might actually cause them to die. And instead of the workers noticing that there is a problem with that um, bee that's down in that cell, instead of removing that bee, which is a, kind of a typical hygienic behavior, um, they actually leave it there. And they, we call, they call that entombing because now the mite um, only has a dead bee to feed on and it can do that maybe for a day or so, but then it's going to basically, it's not going to be able to feed anymore and then it will basically die down in that cell. Hey, Cameron, when you're talking about Varroa and reproduction, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how they reproduce and how they multiply? You know, how do they multiply so quickly? Sure. So basic Varroa reproduction, um, uh, uh, basically the only mites that you're going to see are females. So what happens is um, a female is enters into a cell and there maybe are a couple different mechanisms that are used. Um, one there's definitely a school of thought that shows that the number of times that a bee is entering to a cell to feed that larva might be a cue for that mite to enter or might also be detecting some of the pheromones that the larva is giving off to let the workers know that it's time to cap that cell and they will detect that and then they they hurry and they jump into the cell they bury themselves under the brood food for a period of time until that cell is capped and that um, larva will then eat the remaining um, brood food, kind of releasing the mite, will kind of stand up on its end, enter the pre-pupa phase. And at that point, the mite is basically free to move about the cabin and <laughs> will then um, be able to start feeding. And within just a, about 30 hours or so, the mite will start to lay eggs. And the first egg will generally always be a male. And then this every subsequent egg will then turn into females. And then with just in this short period of time of of uh, the bee development going through its pupa period, um, this the male son will then mate with all the female daughters. And so there's just a tremendous amount of inbreeding. So wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. So if a single adult varroa goes into the cell, 
And she uh, lays an egg in science. We call that oviposit because nothing's easy to say in science. So they, she oviposits. She produces an egg. That egg's a male. If only one varroa female goes in, she'll, produ- she'll produce a male, produce subsequently uh, females. So in this case, only brothers and, and sisters are available to mate. So this is okay. This is they've somehow got it figured out. They're not turning blue. They're not some <laughs> other genetic defects that we're seeing. They yeah. they've got it figured out. How can you tell the difference between a male and a female? Yeah, great you question. Ask it, Amy. Well, I'm asking <laughs> right now. <laughs> That's rude. You don't ask no, some varroa. Yeah. Okay. All right. So. <laughs> uh, so you can see that the males are um, they're not fully sclerotized. They're they're soft bodied and they're a bit more round. They, so mm-hmm. they just kind of have a whitish pinkish color to them, whereas. Um, the female, once they are, when they're in a nymph stage, so they're not fully mature, they're still kind of that white color because they're not fully sclerotized or hardened. Uh, but when they become adults, they kind of turn that reddish brown color um, and they, they fully sclerotized and that's when they would mate. So, so why do we never see males? Um, the males will stay down in the cells and they actually die. They never leave the cell. So they, so you won't expect to see a male unless you are physically opening up a cell and pulling out the pieces. So, so their bodies never sclerotize either, right? Interesting. That's, that's such a weird, I mean, you think about um, the development of that trait. I guess if mating occurs in cap cells, it's not necessary to have males outside of that. But males are really, they're really just sperm transfers, right? In this exactly. case, they don't actually need to come out. They don't need to survive very long. They just mm-hmm. exist long enough to mate. To mate. With your sisters. I have two words. Girl power. <laughs> we have no words in reply. <laughs> All we can do is agree. <laughs> well, that's interesting. I'm, I want to circle the wagons back just a little bit. So you, you said they came from Asia. They're a natural pest of Apis serrana. But there are eight species of honeybees in Asia. And, of course, the ninth species, Apis mellifera, has been introduced. So if there are eight species, and Apis serrana is one of those. That means there are seven other species of, of honeybee there, right? Mm-hmm. Do varroa? occur on any of those other species? Are they are they natural pests of any of these other species? Can they get on dorsata or, Thor, or Floria or Ingeniformis or, or the other cavity nesters? Serrana is pretty closely related to Nuluensis and Kashevnikovi. So, so do Varroa show up on these other bees? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, they do, they have been found to show up. I don't know um, that they, the other species aren't really well managed. And so I don't think there, we just have as much information. Apis serrana is, um, is a managed honeybee, and so beekeepers have been looking and studying it probably much more than they have some of the other species. Um, their different species have different problems. For instance, Apis dorsata, the giant honeybee, which is not a cavity nester, it's an open nester, they have their own mite, which would be tropolalap. Sure. Um, and Varroa can show up on there as well, but they just don't. I mean, when whenever tropolalaps is involved, it's kind of mm-hmm. tends to overshadow Varroa. So I certainly think that these mites can um, be present in other honeybee species, but they're generally not considered as big of a threat, primarily because people aren't really looking and they're not really managing for them. Sure. So, Cameron, you know, I, I think I think there really have been kind of two major breakthroughs in Varroa research in my time experience in Varroa. You know, I've only been keeping bees now for since the the early 90s. But, you know, in my time... The first big breakthrough with Varroa is when it when they discovered that it was not the species they thought it was. So if you look in the literature prior to 2000, it, it talks about Varroa jacobsoni. Right. And this was the mite everyone was concerned about. It's the one that they fought. But in 2000, uh, Anderson and Truman published that it is not, in fact, 
Jacob Sonat's Destructor. Now, you right. mentioned that. To me, that it was a significant breakthrough, understanding species, knowing that there's haplotypes or types mm-hmm. of Destructor that are worse than others. I think the second uh, major breakthrough actually came earlier in 2019. I think that's when, when Sammy Ramsey and, and a team from the University of Maryland, as well as the USDA, as well as, here, as well as here at the University of Florida, discovered that they don't feed feed on hemolymph, which is bee blood, which is what everybody thought for the longest time. And you mentioned early what that food stuff is that they consume, and what is it? Fat tissue. So why why do you think that's a significant finding? We're, we're gonna we plan to have Dr. Ramsey on, on a future podcast, but for now, just to summarize, you know why is that a, a major finding? Well, I think it's important to one be able to understand where it's feeding that it it. At the moment, it's probably not going to change the way that we treat or handle Varroa, but it does definitely affect the way that we might study Varroa and and um, particularly trying to produce Varroa in the lab. Now that we know what they eat, we have a better idea of their diet, we can actually try to rear the mites in the lab. And if you think of the significance of something like that, I mean, every kind of agricultural pest that exists, if, if they are if like there's a specific insect that feeds on a plant, you can grow that plant and you throw those insects on it. And then you have, um, I mean, they will reproduce and, and do whatever they need to do on that plant. And then you can, you have basically um, insects that you can use for your research year round. Mm-hmm. Well, there's nothing like that for Varroa. If we want Varroa, we have to go into a hive and get it. And I know that some of you beekeepers are listening. You, I mean, the joke guy, everybody always says to me every time I go talk, they're like, well, you can have my Varroa. But like, (laughs) I need, when you're doing research, you need lots of Varroa. Like, I mean, even a severely infested colony is not enough. I need lots of severely infested colonies. So to have a method of being able to rear the mite in the lab um, would just be so beneficial to Varroa research. And so understanding what they're actually feeding is a huge step in that direction. Well, to me, both of those findings, findings that there there was, in fact, a second species, the one that's the major issue, and finding that they don't feed on what we thought they fed on, that, to me, illustrates how science works and how it moves. For example, the number one pest, in my opinion, of, of honeybees happens to be Varroa. Well, if this is the thing that scientists around the world are studying, and we didn't know that it was a different species. And decades after that, we continued to still believe that it fed on hemolymph rather than fat tissue. And now we know otherwise. Imagine um, the other things we need to find out about it, but not just it, but other things in the bee world, things that we might take for granted that may not actually be true and that might radically change the way we approach bees and beekeeping. I've kind of got one parting question. Maybe Amy has one after this, but I've got one parting question about Varroa. So you've told us that it feeds on fat tissue. Fast, these fat bodies are, are, are important for bees, bee health, et cetera. But what, what else does it do? Why, why is it bad? You know, it gets in, it reproduces on our bees, so what? You know, what, why, how do Varroa contribute to the weakening of a colony and the overall loss of a colony? It really comes down to viruses that they can vector and transmit. Um, without viruses, if viruses weren't in the picture, then Varroa would probably be nothing more than just a nuisance right um, but the fact that they um, will then have take a virus that maybe they're taking as they feed on one bee and then they start 
transmitting that to B to B to B to B to B as they continue to feed and move, um, that's when it becomes a problem. And sure. it's not necessarily that these mites are bringing in new viruses into your colony. The honeybee colonies already have tons of viruses. Sure. It's just the fact that they are now spreading them like crazy inside the hive. And, and it would just be like, you know, if you had a large group of people locked in a room and then there was a bunch of mosquitoes released. I mean, we're going to start pretty soon. We're going to start sharing each other's viruses. Sure. <laughs> So what would your, so just in closing, what would you, what would you say as far as, you know, one recommendation you would give to our listeners? So to me, it it comes down, you know, the good beekeepers that I've, I've met throughout the years are the ones that are aware of their mite populations. I mean, their mite loads. And I think so many people, it's fair to assume that your colony has mites because most I mean, all colonies yeah, in the United States sure. are going to be infested. But the ones that are aware of their um, mite populations can make better treatment decisions. They make better management decisions. Um, they tend to have better colonies. And and I think that's a really important step that intimidates a lot of new beekeepers, the thought of like going and sampling bees because you think you're going to get stung up a lot. But if you do it the right way, I mean, um, you're going it, it's it's going to be very beneficial for for you and your management. Well, Cameron, that's great. Thanks for joining us on Two Bees in a Pod. I appreciate your virtual knowledge, and we are going to mine it significantly more in the future. Hey, Amy, I've got some trivia for you. What's that? All right. <laughs> I'm ready. Did you know that Varroa is pretty small to the naked eye, right? If you see Varroa, it's a pretty small little, little thing. Mm-hmm. But relative to the size of its host, it is one of the largest parasites known on the planet. Do you know that? I didn't know that. Well, I have a colleague, Dr. Dennis Van Engelsdorp, uh, University of Maryland. Every time he gives this talk, he he always says that Varroa on a bee is like a vampire baby feeding on an adult human. I, I don't use vampire babies. That's a little bit creepy. But I do say that, you know, a, a Varroa to a bee would be something somewhere in the neighborhood of a softball to a volleyball stuck on us, right? So imagine a volleyball-sized tick hanging on your side, and you can get the image of a, what a varroa is to a bee. And so, of course, that's why it's so bad. That does not sound fun to me. But, you know, there was one more thing that I was thinking about oh, okay. when you were telling me about the Little Mermaid the other day and how all the crab look like varroa mite across the screen. Yep. So now I can't even think about the Little Mermaid without thinking of varroa mite. That's right. Everywhere. That's what they all are. They're all varroa. <laughs> well, guys, I hope you enjoyed that segment on Two Bees in a Pod. Varroa, don't worry. We are going to dive deep into varroa biology and sampling and control in the future. Thank you. And we look forward to hearing from you listeners about what you think about Varroa and treatment options that you do. We'll talk about this on the air as well. For more information about this podcast, check out our website at www.ufhoneybee.com. Welcome back, everyone, to Two Bees in a Pod. We're sitting here with Emily Nordyke. She's one of our master's students here at the University of Florida, the Bee Lab. And, you know, something that she really focuses on is honeybee nutrition. So we were just sitting here talking about, you know, the things that bees need. And we all know that bees need, you know, honey for energy and they also need pollen. So today we're going to talk specifically about pollen and some of the, the benefits and, you know, really why bees need that. So hi, Emily. Hi. How are you? I'm doing well. Happy Great. to be here. Good. So do you want to tell us a little bit about pollen and, you know, maybe some of your research or why bees need pollen? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, the first thing to start with is that bees 
need pollen to develop their brood. They need pollen to feed their brood. It's essentially the source of protein, vitamins, lipids, and minerals um, that bees need to fully develop into adults. Um, so foragers will go out into the environment, they'll collect pollen from all sorts of different plants, bring it back, and then that gets fed to the brood. You know, Emily, that's always been kind of an interesting thing to me. Like, you know, there's 20,000 species of bees on the planet, mm -hmm. and the vast majority of them collect pollen, moisten it with nectar, bring it back to a nest, right? And they'll lay an egg on that, and the, the resulting larvae physically eats pollen, right? They eat that pollen nectar ball. But honeybees are a little different. You know, we always talk about bees convert pollen into more bees, right, mm -hmm. through the brood. But brood is fed a lot of brood food and or in the queen's cash royal jelly. So that, that composes the volume of the diet. So they're not exclusively eating pollen. Pollen's added to the diet, but pollen's still necessary for the production of that brood food. Could you could you kind of explain this? I mean, that, this really makes honeybees unique. You know, they, they're not laying eggs on pollen balls. So where does pollen play a role in the production of brood in that example? Right, exactly. Um, so basically the nurse bees are the way that all the protein and nutrients from pollen gets to the brood. Sure. Um, so the nurse bees will actually eat the bee bread. So that's the stored pollen um, in the hive. They consume the most bee bread in the hive out of any other um, worker cohort. Sure. And then they essentially convert all of those nutrients into the brood food um, through their hypopharyngeal glands. Sure. And then they feed that directly to the brood. Um, so for the first three days of uh, larval development, worker larval development, they'll get that brood food. Um, and then after that, they'll get brood food and then they'll also get um, a little portion of just straight pollen and then they also mix in nectar as well sure. so as they age um, their nutrition differs um, but they're getting pollen like the nutrients from pollen yes mostly mostly from the brood food yeah that's interesting is you know honeybees are really just unique in that capacity right so essentially their pollen is responsible in two ways for their diet right it, it helps the uh, the nurse bees like what you said develop their glands that they use to produce brood food and pollen is also mixed into the food later i mean i just i think that's fascinating that that developed any bees at all it's just a crazy thing so you know are all pollens created equal? I mean, I, there's lots of plants out there that have flowers. Bees or honeybees are visiting lots of different flowers. Are all pollens created equal? You said they get proteins, vitamins, minerals, et cetera. So can they get everything they need from just one pollen type? Oh, yeah, good question. So just like humans, like we need a good diverse diet. If we're just eating burgers and fries every day, we're not going to be healthy. We don't have what? a good yeah, diverse Jamie. diet. Right? I don't think that's that. <laughs> Already, I don't believe you, Emily. <laughs> but if we, you know, mix in veggies and, you know, have a good balanced diet, you know, following the food pyramid, then we're going to be healthier individuals. The same goes for bees. So they need um, different sources of pollen from different plants. So different plants will actually produce completely different types of pollen. They'll have different um, sets of amino acids, um, which will cover different requirements that the bees need. They'll have different amounts of lipids, different minerals, different vitamins, the whole deal. So if bees are collecting pollen from a lot of different um, species of plants, then they're more likely to get a balanced diet. Sure, so when beekeepers look at a comb, 
mm-hmm. and they see the pollen stores, is it better to see one color across the face of that comb or just multicolored pollens coming in? Yeah, definitely multicolored. Um, of course, one source of pollen could be really nutritious. Um, For example, certain clovers are considered um, very nutritious. They have a complete suite of amino acids. Interesting. So the physical pollen from some clovers itself is Mm -hmm. like a well-rounded diet all in one pollen. Yes, exactly. Um, So in that case, you know, the bees could be getting a good diet from a single source. Mm. However, if you want to guarantee that they're getting a lot and you don't exactly know what they're foraging from, it's nice to see a range of, of colors in your stores. So it kind of makes me think of, you know, when people go to a nutritional supplement store, you know, do you think the bees are out there just shopping for all these different, you know, pollen colors and all these different, you know, benefits that they have to offer? So there has been previous work done as to whether the bees are actually choosing, um, like behaviorally choosing for better nutrition. Um, Apparently the nurse bees can't really tell, but there's not exactly consensus whether the foragers can tell i just uh, to me pollen foraging pollen handling is just a fascinating topic right mm-hmm. so the worker bees are out there they're they're getting pollen on their bodies they're using their legs to rake this pollen moisten it with nectar and stick it on their back legs to fly it back home they then pop those pollen pellets off there's a lot of peas there pop pollen pellets <laughs> and i did it just fine they pop those pollen pellets off uh-huh. into a cell Some other bees come behind them and pack those pollen pellets in and start the process of creating something that you referred to earlier as bee bread. What in the world is bee bread? Yes, so bee bread is the stored version of pollen. So they are able to keep it in the combs longer term. Um, Basically, once that pollen is packed in to the cells, the bees will add um, some nectar and also uh, enzymes hmm. and bacteria, and that will actually ferment um, hmm. the bee bread um, yeast as well. Sure. That will allow it to be stored longer term for the bees to to use later in the year. So I don't know if you've read this in the literature, but I've had colleagues say at meetings that part of the bee bread. Now maybe I'm wrong about this, but this idea that you know as the bee bread is stored, part of that processing makes the pollen digestible mm-hmm. to the adult mm-hmm. bees. Right, because pollen is a a little grain covered in a shell, right? And the goodies are are on the inside of that shell, but bees otherwise can't digest that shell. So how does that shell, like Mm -hmm. I've read that when bees defecate, their their feces are just full of pollen shells that are otherwise empty. So how are those pollen grains ruptured? Does that happen in the bee bread process or happen in the digestion of that pollen process? Yeah, as far as I know, it happens more in the bee gut. Okay. I don't know how much research has actually been done as to if that happens in the bee bread stores. Um, there's a lot of debate as to whether the bee bread is actually more nutritious than the just pollen pellets coming in. Mm. So some research suge- suggests that the bee bread is actually more nutritious, like that fermentation process sure. allows um, certain nutrients to be uptaken by the bees. However, mm. they're not completely sure if that's true. Um, so there's really kind of a 50-50 split. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Go. Yeah, I had heard that. I've heard, I have colleagues who go to meetings and some of the common statements are, you know, bees don't eat pollen, they eat bee bread. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's, that's very interesting to hear. So I, I've got this interesting observation. So yeah, there's a lot of bee meetings in June and July every year. And so I'm often away from home during those months so my grass doesn't get cut. And in my backyard, I've got bahia. So for you listeners, if you don't know what bahia is, it's a grass that sends up, you know, a foot tall shoot that's got a fork at the top that that's where the pollen is. And in June and July, I will see my bees foraging for pollen 
on Bahia, and mm-hmm. I will see um, evidence of Bahia pollen stored as bee bread. So as a pollen expert, Emily, <laughs> no pressure, what, what does that tell you about my bees and, and the pollen availability in my backyard? Well, I imagine bahia is not a typical diet for, for bees. I'm not familiar with it sure. um, so much myself, but if it's a grass, it's probably yeah, wind-pollinated. Yeah. And typically, um, wind-pollinated plants, you know, they don't need an animal to actually cross-pollinate them. So they're not offering a lot of nutritional value to the bees. The, these pollens aren't usually full of a lot of protein and lipids, like the stuff that bees need. So if there's not a lot for them in the environment, they will actually start collecting those, you know, pollens from grasses that might not be necessarily as good for them. Yeah, you know, I I always think two things when I see that happening. Thing number one, I think, is that, uh, you know, there's clearly not enough high quality pollen available in the environment that bees are having to forage on the tall grass. And thing number two that I think is my wife needs to learn how to use a lawnmower. (laughs) 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 But in all seriousness, (laughs) I do think that uh, that is suggestive of a low quality pollen in the environment. Sure. Yeah. So let me ask, with that in mind, is pollen quality and quantity something beekeepers can address? Is it something for which they can manage? Yeah, um, definitely. I think pollen quantity is difficult. If there's not a lot in the environment already, then the bees just won't have anything to forage on. Um, But they can use uh, protein supplements to try to manage for that, to, um, you know, use these alternative sorts of proteins to give them a boost. Sure. So, um, yeah, and then quality, um, on the other hand, is is difficult. A lot of these feeds on the market, um, they might address certain problems, but um, they might. There's no perfect diet out there that addresses all of the nutritional needs that bees, um, you know, require. So, feeding supplemental feeding can definitely start to address the quantity problem, but I think the quality problem is kind of where we need to um, kind of look more into beekeeping management for. For pollen deficiencies. So, so Emily Nordock, you're, you're a specialist on this because you're studying this for your master's, but we are not going to give away results now. We're <laughs> going to bring you guys back for future episodes of Two Bees in a Pod. Emily, you've been a great uh, guest. We look forward to interviewing you a lot more about how bees use pollen, how beekeepers should be managing for pollen quality and quantity, and some of the research that you have. And we'll bring in other experts as well to talk about this topic. But thank you so much for joining us on Two Bees in a Pod. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. are discussing master beekeeper programs and we are accompanied in this segment by Mary Bammer who was extension coordinator here at the University of Florida Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory. Now she is the instructional design expert and creator and facilitator of our new UF master beekeeper program. Welcome Mary Bammer. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Oh and did I forget to mention She's joining us all the way from snowy, cold Milwaukee, Wisconsin. That's right. It is a warm 20 degrees and snowy currently mm-hmm. where I am at. 
Mary, you are our first call-in guest. This is kind of exciting Whoa. for us here at Two Bees in a Pod. Very yeah, exciting. Well, I'm honored. I'm honored to be here. You should be, uh, Phil Honored. <laughs> I mean, it's a great accomplishment to be on our podcast in its new, <laughs> yes, its new yes, days. Absolutely. Lucky uh, you. All right. So, Amy, we need to talk with Mary about Master Beekeeper Program. So, Mary, I'm going to give you an easy volley. The first question I have for you is, what is a Master Beekeeper Program? That's a great start. I like it. Yeah, Master Beekeeper Program, there's many different iterations of them, but essentially they're all essentially they're all the same process. So it's a certificate program that beekeepers can take to essentially learn about bees and beekeeping. Most of them have multiple levels, so they start with sort of beginner beekeeping topics and then they work their way into more complicated, more advanced beekeeping topics. But beekeepers are um, deciding to participate in these programs basically because they want to learn how to be better beekeepers and they want to learn more about their bees. So, Mary, who runs master beekeeper programs? I mean, are they throughout the United States? Yeah. So, again, they're not any, no one program is uh, the same. So, they're all a bit different in how they're managed. But in general, they tend to be managed by uh, local or regional beekeeping groups, um, sometimes government groups within a state will run them. A lot of times they're run through universities, often the land-grant universities in a state. Um, but again, they're all kind of managed a bit differently. You know, it's funny. I, I hate to be misquoted since podcasts actually, you know, freeze your words. But I, if I'm not mistaken, I believe it may be Cornell uh, University where the first Master Beekeeper program was run. And since since then, they've kind of spread. So, Mary, you're right. You know, a lot of them are run out of universities. Increasingly, more, I think, are run out of um, state beekeeper clubs usually. Right. Um, I know that the Eastern Apiculture Society has a master beekeeper program, so that's kind of a U.S. regional master beekeeper program. And I've even heard rumblings that some of the national associations have considered master beekeeper programs. So they are popular. One, one thing that's interesting is even though other countries don't call them master beekeeper programs, there are similar iterations of programs. I know when I'm in the U.K., they have advanced training programs. They might call them certificates or something. But for lack of a better uh, comparison, they're very similar otherwise to master beekeeper programs. And so you, you mentioned some things that are of extreme interest to me. You know, talk about beekeepers learning about beekeeping. So, you know, I've been keeping bees 30 years. I didn't have a master beekeeper program when I was growing up, and I can keep bees just fine, thank you. So are, are master beekeeper programs necessary? Like what, what benefit do beekeepers get out of participating in them? Sure. Yeah. And I think it's important to point out, too, that, you know, the beekeeping landscape today is considerably different than it was even 10 years ago. Are you calling me so, old? Um, 10 years ago, I <laughs> okay, said it's no. old. That's, that's okay. yeah. No. All right. Um, what if? <laughs> what if, for sure. <laughs> so, I mean, I think I think one important thing to note here is that there are so many new beekeepers now um, that are just getting into the field that maybe didn't have some family tied to beekeeping. They might just be getting into it um, brand new. And so I think there is, even more so today than 10 or 20 years ago, I think there is a strong need for sort of more formal education for these new beekeepers who are just sort of jumping into the field. Um, and I think, you know, one thing that master beekeeper programs do well is they they offer a place to start for a lot of beekeepers. So a lot of people are interested in beekeeping, they want to get into it, but it's sort of a daunting process, especially if you don't already have sort of local or family ties to beekeeping. So I think one big benefit of master beekeeper programs is it really provides that 
foundation from which beekeepers can start. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. You know, everything that you mentioned there, though, was a focus on new beekeepers. And so what about seasoned beekeepers or people who've even been in bees for 10 years? Can a commercial beekeeper who's been keeping bees for 50 years benefit from this education? Yeah, I think it's not the obvious track for for experienced beekeepers to take, but I think there is a lot of excellent information in a lot of these programs that can benefit beekeepers from brand new to experienced. And one of the things that this type of program does is it sort of takes some of the guesswork out of beekeeping, right? So we can learn a lot about our bees and we do learn a lot about our bees by working with them and through trial and error. But one of the beautiful things about this type of program is it collects sort of the information that we know about bees from across the country and compiles it into one place. So it, I think it can sort of help even experienced beekeepers take some of that guesswork out of the the basics of beekeeping, um, and oftentimes these types of program these types of programs, because they are often run through research universities, you can often have more cutting edge beekeeping information in this type of program. So I think that's one place where experienced beekeepers even can really benefit from this type of structured program. So it sounds like Mary, you're saying that you know all the things that maybe the beekeepers have out there, this this course can maybe help them reaffirm some of the things that they were thinking or kind of wondering about. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think that's a great way to put it. And I also think that it can help sort of banish those misconceptions that are out there, even among experienced beekeepers. I mean, there's a lot of things that just get circulated through word of mouth in beekeeping as good practice, um, but maybe aren't as substantiated when you actually look at the research. So I think that these types of programs are a good way to sort of, um, yeah, reevaluate what you do know and kind of push out those those misconceptions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, you know, the, the master beekeepers are all over the United States, but our our program here at UF, it's available to, to people outside of Florida as well, right? Do you want to tell us a little bit about the program? Yeah, I would love to tell you about the program because it's what I spend all day doing. So I'm, I'm very happy it's your to time tell to shine, Mary. It. It's your time to shine. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I think, so we've recently at UF have, have transitioned our program from an in-person program that was very Florida-centric to an online program that does allow beekeepers from around the country and honestly from around the world to participate in this training. Um, so most most master beekeeper programs are very regionally focused. Um, Jamie mentioned that some of the federal uh, or some of the sort of national level beekeeping groups are starting these programs and those are obviously a bit broader. But I think what is unique about um, this online program that we've been developing is that there is Florida specific content, but it's delivered for the national audience. So um, all of the information in there is relevant to beekeepers across the country. And as I said, around the world even. All you really need is access to bees and access to the internet to get into this program. And, and Mary, I'm, I'm just gonna layer on top of that. I think what, just kind of bridging together a few thoughts that we've had recently. So, you know, one of the barriers to say commercial beekeepers or experienced beekeepers getting into the program is because they, do, you know, we all require them to start at the beginning level and they all know how to light a smoker and things like that. So, you know, the earlier levels can be barriers to more advanced beekeepers. But the beauty of making this online means that we have this depth and breadth of resources that we can excise and export to commercial beekeepers 
who, who might only want to see certain modules. So maybe they don't have to join the Master Beekeeper program, but the content developed for the Master Beekeeper program can be um, extraneously offered in other ways for commercial beekeepers who, who might otherwise not want to hear the information because they don't want to wade through the stuff that's more uh, beginner-centric in the first level. Does that make sense, right? You know, this idea that we're creating a mess load of content to populate the entire course, and since commercial beekeepers don't want to start from the beginning, we can just pull information that's relevant to them, and they would still benefit from the program, even if they're not participating in the program. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And just to give an example of that, you know, right now we're sort of working on multiple levels of the Master Beekeeper program at the same time. And we have content on Varroa and integrated pest management and other pest and disease management strategies. And you're right, right now they're spread across a couple different Master Beekeeper levels, but we can, because this program is online and we've modularized the content, we can kind of pull those modules from the different levels and, as you said, package them into this um, program that is specific to the needs of the beekeepers. Yeah, I, I think another powerful thing about putting it online rather than doing it face-to-face is when you're doing stuff live, you know, that that's often the preferred way, right? People want to see their teachers and want to interact with them. But on the other hand, when it's online, it allows you to put a lot of thought and planning into the information that you are offering, right? And so once it gets online, it's it's very good. And so I want you to kind of walk us through just just the levels in our program and and our expectations of the students as they move through. And, and just keep in mind, we know that this is a Florida-centric answer, but it's relevant because a lot of programs follow the same method. They, they want to see their beekeepers advance. But walk through our program. What, what are beekeepers experiencing? What uh, educational opportunities are available to them in, in the various levels? What do we expect of them as they progress? Yeah, so, and this is something that, you know, we have been transforming throughout the history of our program as many other programs have as well. So, you know, what we expected of beekeepers maybe five or 10 years ago is different. And this program being in an online um, environment has sort of allowed us to focus in on some of those, you know, really look at the scholarship of learning and how is it that beekeepers can actually not just sort of absorb information, but translate that information into their beekeeping practices. So the way that our program works and it's not dissimilar from other programs is uh, our program has four levels to it. So a lot of programs have three. Uh, We did add a fourth level sort of uh, previously in our program's history, but our program has four levels. So all beekeepers will start off at that apprentice level. So that's level one. And the purpose of that level is really just to lay a solid foundation in honeybees and beekeeping. So being a scientific organization, we feel like understanding the biology of the bees is really key to being able to manage them effectively. So a big portion of the apprentice level course is honeybee biology. It's also an introduction to equipment, how to install your first hives, where to go for other resources when you're, you know, looking, when you have questions about your bees. So the apprentice level is that foundation. The second level in our program is advanced. So this is when we're kind of taking the next step into not just managing our bees to survive, but how to manage them so that they benefit us. So this is when we start looking at, uh, looking more seriously at pest management, at how bees are used in pollination services and how to produce and extract and process honey. So that's sort of the main focus of the advanced level. And the following two levels are master and master craftsman is the fourth level. 
And in these two levels is when we're really diving into sort of the nitty gritty technical details of beekeeping. So those more advanced topics, looking at integrated pest management in the hive, how beekeepers can sort of adopt these strategies, um, focusing on some of the more specifics of honeybee biology and how that influences management. So essentially the program is these four levels. We're starting with the basics and then we're building over time uh, so that you're not getting all of this information at once, but you're sort of getting it in these digestible chunks that the learner can you know, I think one of the coolest things about the online program is that it's asynchronous, meaning you can do the program as fast or as slowly as you want. You can look at lessons. You can you can watch all of the lessons for the apprentice level at once, or you can do it over the course of two years. So you kind of, as the learner, have control over your learning process. Yeah, I think, you know, there's value in master beekeeper programs. I know that, you know, we've done it here at Florida, University of Florida for for quite a while. As you've noted, we're transitioning online. But over the years, you know, some of the skeptics are like, well, you know, people are learning information, but they can't practically apply it. You know, or I've got experience. They've just got book knowledge. And what I would say to people who have that idea is just give the program a try. I mean, if you learn nothing, then perhaps the program's not for you. But I'm utterly convinced that everyone would learn something in each level progressing through the program. It's just impossible not to. And, and, and ultimately, education's education, right? We provide the content and the education. We hope people use it and apply it. But, you know, the university doesn't make foresters or lawyers if the people who hear and learn the information don't apply it correctly. So ultimately, right. people are responsible for their behavior. So if you if you go through our program and can't put a frame together, that's on you. But <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> but nevertheless, we we have worked hard to develop it in an appropriate way. I think it's benefit uh, to beekeepers. Amy. Yeah, I re- I so when I, when I was back when I was an agent a couple of years back, I remember you know I did have beekeeping experience and I decided to take the master beekeeper program and it was it was more difficult than I expected it to be. I mean I don't know, Jamie. I know that you narrated some of those presentations but we'll we'll have to see if he can test out of some of the you know questions that we have for him what do you think yeah i don't know i'm a little nervous about that (laughs) (laughs) well mary sorry go ahead i was just gonna to piggyback on on something you said earlier about sort of that you know practical hands-on knowledge i think that is one criticism we receive about having an online beekeeping program is you know how can you learn everything about beekeeping online and how is that how does that translate to sort of real life practice Um, But one interesting thing I think we've implemented is there is in-hive practical assessments that are built into this online course. So even though, you know, we might not be with you as you go through a colony, technology today allows us to, you know, you record yourself going through a colony and talking through what you're doing, and then we can see it, you know, after you've uploaded it to the course. So we, you know, there are definitely ways to implement uh, that sort of hands-on practical assessment into even an online program. And Mary, that's a good point. I'm, I'm going to layer on top of that, you know, to the people who think that this is just an academic uh, program. We require individuals in the program to be active beekeepers at each level. Right. So, you know, that's the practical part. They're listening to us and they're seeing their colonies a different way the next time they open it. So there's a tremendous amount of hands-on learning that accompanies our program just by virtue of us requiring that participants be beekeepers and actually own colonies. So that's that's how I usually address that critique is it is in fact um, a practical uh, learning experience in addition to 
the um, academic or, or, or uh, more you know, PowerPoint or video or reading learning experience. We think it's comprehensive and we use a lot of different methods of teaching to get the point across. Mary, you've been a great interviewee. I appreciate you talking about Master Beekeeper programs with us. Yeah, thanks for having me and thanks for uh, including me back in the lab. It feels yeah. good to be a part of the group again. Well, thanks for joining us on Two Bees in a Pod, and we know that we are going to have you on our podcast in the future. Thank you so much. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Stay warm. <laughs> I'll try. Absolutely. And it's Q&A time. <laughs> All right. It's about that time. Our question and answers. We have a couple of questions that we got off of social media, and, you know, we'll, we'll just go ahead and talk about some landscape stuff. Jamie, I know we were just talking about how much you don't like to mow your grass, <laughs> um, but one of our questions was that, you know, people are seeing bees in their landscape, and suddenly, you know, maybe the next year, they don't see any bees anymore. So what could be going on? You know, Amy, I get that question all the time, probably three to four times a year. And honestly, there's about a zillion answers to it. The mm-hmm. easiest answer that I give right out the gate is, you know, just because you saw them one year doesn't mean that you presume that they should be there the next year. People have been hearing the story of bee losses, right? So when they see honeybees on their plants and then fail to see them on their plants, they assume that this is just one of the symptoms of bee loss. My mm-hmm. bees have died too. It's a problem. But in reality, it could be that you had a nesting colony nearby last year that died and is no longer there this year. This doesn't mean the entire population is wiped out. It could just mean the nest is gone. It could also mean that they're foraging on other things and heading a different direction because your yard's not sufficient. It also could mean that you were seeing not honeybees or non-honeybees and seeing other bees whose populations have shifted to another area. So there's lots of potential reasons. It's not necessarily a cause for concern. You know, just cross your fingers and expect them to be back next year. And you can always plant pollinator-friendly landscape and then expect them to be back next year. So good question, but it's not necessarily a cause for alarm. Yeah, I guess I'd be pretty offended if bees didn't want to visit my yard. I'm planting those (laughs) pollinator plants for those bees. But are you planting the right plants for those bees? (laughs) That's true, and that'll be on a podcast (laughs) in a future session. No doubt. All right. So the second question we have is about the waggle dance. So we're talking about bees leaving the hive. And, and you know, when they're doing the waggle dance, what are they actually trying to do? Now, you know you're asking a Baptist about dancing, right? <laughs> <laughs> I already don't know the answer. Okay. In, in all seriousness, uh, one of the ways that bees communicate is through dancing. Of course, they communicate in other ways through pheromones, etc. But when they are trying to communicate food resources available in the environment, one of the dances that they will use is a dance called the waggle dance. The waggle dance is roughly in the shape of a figure eight. So the bees will dance on the face of the comb in the shape of a figure eight to communicate to their watchers where the food resource is. And with that dance, they can communicate direction of the food source relative to the sun, distance, and quality of the food out there waiting. So It is so coded that humans deciphered the code. In fact, Carl von Frisch, the German bee scientist, deciphered the code such that we can actually watch them dance and know where the resource is that they're trying to communicate to their workers. It's an amazing behavior. Sounds like you could probably use some... 
<laughs> yes, Amy. <laughs> Are you? Tra- <laughs> you might want to take some tips from the bees. As yeah, far well, as how let to me dance, tell you, Amy. Amy. I've got a secret <laughs> for you. Bees are not the only things that communicate by <laughs> dancing. <laughs> what else communicate? College students. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you set yourself up for that. I did. Let's move All on. All right. Okay. So the last one again. We're on the same topic as what happens outside that hive. So when we when we see swarms, when swarms happen, you know, usually. A they find a place the queen goes off everyone follows the queen they find a location what happens if the queen dies well good question so the the problem with the question is not is a good question but the problem with it is that you know the queen can die at multiple points in the swarm and it depends on at what point she dies the the response of the swarm obviously uh, when a colony swarms the 70 percent or so of the bees will rush out with the queen and they'll coalesce into what we call a swarm, a physical ball or grouping of bees, usually hanging from a tree limb or a fence. If she dies in that process, somewhere in that stage, the bees will actually return to their parent hive. And so the queen might die, the bees will go back, essentially. That's the usual case. Now, once that swarm has found a location or a cavity in which to move, maybe a hollow tree or a you know, hole in the ground or a wall or a chimney, once they move um, to that new cavity, if the queen were to die at that stage, usually the colony is hopelessly lost unless they had already constructed a little bit of comb and the queen laid eggs in that comb. But pending she didn't do that, they're hopelessly queenless. Workers will begin to lay eggs, and, and such a colony is doomed. Hopefully, if she did move into a cavity and lay a little bit before she died, there will be um, female larvae from which they could make new queens. It's a great question, but like I said, it all depends on where in the process the queen died. Yeah, and I always remember you say, as far as when, when do bees swarm, that answer is typically when you least want them to. Yeah, you know, bees swarm when you least want them to. That's because bees tend to swarm leading up to and during the first half of the major nectar flow, right? And so you need all of your bees present. Bees want to be gone, so they most likely swarm when you most want them not to swarm. (laughs) Nevertheless, Amy, it is incredibly important to remember that swarming is natural and it is colony-level reproduction. It is what bees want to do more than anything else, right? Because anything that can reproduce really, really wants to. And we'll get we'll get talking more about that in future episodes. But can't keep, wait. Keep the questions <laughs> coming. We're having a lot of fun with them, and we'll see you on the next podcast. We'd like to give an extra special thank you to the following: to our editors Shelby Howell and Bailey Carroll, and to our audio engineer James Weaver. Without their hard work, Tubies in a podcast would not be possible. So thank you. For more information and additional resources for today's episode, don't forget to visit the UF IFAS Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory's website, ufhoneybee.com. Do you have questions you won't answer it on air? If so, email them to honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at UF Honeybee Lab. While there, don't forget to follow us. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. 